When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, I'm Soleho, and you're listening to the Extra Spicy Podcast. We have a great and kind of spicy episode lined up today. I'm chatting with none other than Joe Rosenthal. I'm Joe Rosenthal. Uh, What I do is tough. I'm a mathematician. Um, I have a PhD in applied mathematics. I work on uh, building cancer diagnostic software. Joe is one of the more interesting and enigmatic figures in the food world. A mathematician by day, he's what I describe as a serial receipt keeper who documents food world wrongdoing on his Instagram page. He calls out everything from bad seafood canning practices and Bon Appetit videos to abuse in restaurant kitchens. People go to him with food world gossip, and it seems like he's got dirt on everybody. I can name names, but... um. And just a warning, if you are listening with people who maybe shouldn't be hearing profanities or just don't like them in general, don't listen to this one. And now here's my conversation with Joe Rosenthal. So Joe, it's so great to chat with you today. Thanks for joining me on Extra Spicy. Thanks for having me. Uh, It's great to talk to you. I think it's been a running joke on the show that I am going to be canceled like oh, no. <laughs> at any moment for anything that I say. Do you think so? Do you think I'm problematic? You? No. Yeah. Um, I, I, I mean, I, look, I, I think, is everyone problematic in some way? Yeah. Am I problematic? Yeah. Like, if we're going to go there, sure. But I, I think, um, well, first of all, is anyone actually really canceled? I'm inclined to say almost no one really is. But to answer your specific question, no, I mean, unless I'm missing something, um intense i i don't i don't think i i don't know people seem to latch on to all sorts of stuff it's hard to really predict it um <laughs> uh-huh well this is an invitation then if you're listening and you have dirt on me send it to joe yeah this He'll isn't the it. first time um somebody has kind of been like joe you know you find find the stuff you report on it you promise and it's like okay um i guess <laughs> i don't really want to <laughs> Yeah. uh, So we should take a minute, though, for people who are not familiar with what you do or, you know, just in case they're not extremely online like both of us. You focus on the food world and investigate problems that food media just doesn't always touch. For example, I remember your very disgusting reporting on the moldy jam scandal at Squirrel in L.A., which Justin and I talked about in a previous season of the podcast. You have takes on a lot of subjects, including misogyny, abuse in kitchens, or anti-Semitism. Can you tell me, just like outline, and maybe this is a huge question, but outline like what what values you hold. I mean, what what drives you? I I honestly don't know. I mean, I think, um, you know, a a central case that I I took on, essentially, it was was Squirrel in, in Los Angeles. That kind of blew up my presence. You know, when that happened, I was getting flooded with people talking about, you know, abuse and um, inequity in, in their restaurants and, and just their their environments. And um, I don't know, it was kind of like I was doing this stuff, talking about inequity, talking about you know, these topics uh, prior to Squirrel. But I guess 
with that kind of came this uh, expanded reach. And I've said it before in <laughs> various interviews, but like, you know, ideally I wouldn't have to do any of this anymore. It'd be nice to, you know, have people, I guess, empowered to either call this stuff out or for, you know, this stuff to, I don't know, be, it's kind of maybe overly optimistic, but like less prevalent. Let's kind of go through just your process, if you don't mind. Okay. Yeah. Let's sure. say, you know, Chef X did something like, I don't know, choke someone out in the cooler and Oof. someone reaches out to you about it. Yeah. Where do you start? It's tough. I think, you know, every single thing I, I take on is, is different. You know, in some cases, it's like I might have, um, you know, one person that is online talking about this stuff publicly and I might reach out and kind of spiral out from there. Um, in other cases, it could be something as simple as a restaurant failing to fulfill orders, you know, online for delivery. People are complaining about that. And it's like, well, let's look at their Yelp. And then you see like accusations of being racist. And so, you know, every case is different. Um, in some cases, it's, you know, somebody approaches me. In other cases, I'm kind of just digging into something on my own initially. Um, in the case where I have one person that says, hey, I am facing this abuse, mm. I need to be able to corroborate it in some manner, not to say that this person is is lying. I, I generally do not believe that, but it's a matter of I need to figure out how pervasive this is. I need to figure out, like, if it's just one person claiming this, it may well not go anywhere. You know, it could be that the the chef just says it didn't happen and then, right, you know. There's, you can't really go anywhere. And so, you know, so much of what I do is just talking to people. You know, it's going into background. It's going into my notes. I, I, I can't really do anything with it. And, you know, not everything is, is, is as so severe as, you know, getting choked out in a walk-in. But, um, you know, there's a lot of really awful stuff that I hear about that I can't do anything about, at least not right away. By default, I try to operate off the record that is, you know, they talk to me. I don't publish without their explicit permission as far as how I'm citing the information and what the information cited actually is. You know, I'll say, hey, you know, off the record, you know, send me everything you've got on this. If you've got, you know, emails, do that. You know, a lot of times it'll be like, okay, you know, get me everything, you know, put me in touch with all these other people that you say, you know, are on board or having the same experience. And, you know, a lot of times I just don't hear anything back. I don't think, um, that's surprising. Obviously, it's, you know, hard to hear it back from anyone these days. You know, just <laughs> mm -hmm. it's just the state of the world, you know. So how often do you think, I mean, would you say people reach out to you about this kind of stuff? I don't know. It's tough to put a number on it. I think um, it can kind of all happen at the same time sometimes. Some cases where, you know, I talk to somebody and maybe I actually, you know, report some stuff out and then I, I'm, I'm done with it for a while. You know, maybe like a year later, I'll, I'll get an email um, saying like, here's documents, you know, supporting some stuff that you, you know, kind of thought was happening and you couldn't prove. And it's like, well, holy shit. OK, I guess I'm back on this one. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, when a big thing happens, you know, I'll hear a lot. And I think I'm just one person. So it can be really hard. Like if I'm in the thick of it with, uh, you know, uh, a case that's taking up a lot of my, you know, mental energy and emotional energy. I might not have the bandwidth to deal with anything else. So, I'll, you know, I might just say, like, you know, email me stuff when you can. It's hard to just track it all. Mm. 
Yeah. I mean, why do you feel that burden in particular? I don't know. I guess it's it's kind of a chicken and the egg thing. It's kind of like I was doing it. And so now like people are coming to me mm. and I am doing it because people are coming to me. It's kind of this circular logic. I initially did it because I, I was close to that world and talking to people who were harmed. And now I've kind of put myself close to a lot of people. And now people are coming to me. And um, it's kind of hard to walk away from it. I mean, do you get anything out of this just personally? I don't know. I mean, obviously, I've gotten press. You know, we're talking. <laughs> um, this is a thing. Um, I've gotten write-ups in various publications, but um, I think I'm more interested in seeing the work that I'm talking about published. Not like I want to, you know, write for publications, but like I'm reporting on this person. I would like to see, you know, a publication kind of pick that up. I think that's more interesting to me than actually seeing like, oh, this is Joe Rosenthal. He's doing this thing. And I realize like, you know, those sorts of profiles or, or uh, write-ups kind of help get um, more focus on the work. But I think, you know, I'm kind of directly focused on getting reporting on the harm out there. It's hard to really say I get anything out of it. I don't know. Um, I feel like a motivation to do it. And I feel shitty when like, it doesn't go well. But you know, I don't make money from it. You have a job job also. Yeah. Yeah. How do you balance all of this? And you have a spouse at home. Like, yeah. there's like so much <laughs> that you're carrying. Um, how do you how do you do it? <laughs> is this is this your hobby? Like, is this does this count as a hobby? I feel weird calling it a hobby, you know, because it's not like it's heavy. Yeah. Yeah. It's heavy. I mean, I think even just talking about, you know, just anti-Semitism in general can get heavy. Just posting a news article about some teacher who had a really fucked up Holocaust um, lesson. Mm. Um, and God, there are some really bad ones. And I, I've talked about them in my anti-Semitism highlights. And, you know, every sort of case that I'll post about, even if it's not like I'm reporting on this, but like I'm sharing a news article. I don't know. It's, it's tough. You know, people look kind of for support. And I, I try to give that. But, you know, that's draining. Right. How would you explain this? Like, how would you explain this this desire among people who are, you know, often strangers to reach out to you via Instagram to talk about all of this really intense stuff? I, I think it kind of comes down to this idea, I almost want to call it a fallacy of cancel culture, where there's this inherent power structure that is kind of, at someone's whim, just canceling people, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. And I, I think you know, there's bad actors out there, but I think in general... You know, it's a lot of people just screaming for accountability. And I think, you know, people see that at least some of what I'm doing has, has kind of broken through. You know, there's been some press write-ups about, you know, cases I've taken on. And so I think people have uh, this feeling of hope that, you know, maybe I can help them reach for this accountability. How do you define accountability? Like, what is that? <laughs> Tough questions. I think in order to determine, you know, what is accountability? I think you're inherently judging a person rather than kind of, I don't know, for lack of a better phrase, let the market decide. Mm. Mm -hmm. You know, like pizzerias being racist to its customers, um, and it's like demonstrable, right? Um, you can kind of put that information out there and, you know, if people want to support that, they can. And I think in my experience, a lot of people don't. You know, I put the reporting out there 
people kind of decide if this is disqualifying and, you know, if let's say something's really extreme, like, you know, in the case of the racist pizzeria and, you know, there's influencers that are still promoting it kind of when it's already hit national news, I might, you know, do my whole, hey, you know, here's a Today Show article about this <laughs> racist pizzeria. You know, you could click the link here uh, and read about it. I kind of try to assume that, you know, people don't know in those cases. But yeah, I'll, I'll try to, you know, keep pressure on, but not prescribe like, oh, you know, three Hail Marys and, and five Our Fathers is, is accountability, right? Mm -hmm. Right. I went to Catholic school for a few years, uh, even though I'm a Jew. <laughs> um, what is accountability? I, I think it starts with... An acknowledgement, and that might not be like a public acknowledgement, though I think people really crave that. A lot of times the, the person in question who, who perpetuated the harm needs to actually acknowledge the harm to themselves before, you know, they can actually proceed with any other step of accountability. Mm -hmm. I think there was, you know, a Bon Appetit star who was implicated in, you know, some sort of scandal when that basically whole situation imploded, and they ended up not really doing anything publicly for a long time and, and came back and kind of had this notes app apology, like, you know, months later. And I, I think I'm not going to claim it was, a, it was a great notes app apology, but I think there is some merit in this kind of, okay, I fucked up. This is really bad. I'm going to take some time and reflect on this and think of, and introspect. Because I think, you know, generally when this stuff happens, you know, people either have the will to just kind of say anything they want to get out of it mm. or the resources to have somebody else say, you know, anything. And I think you've seen that with a lot of the cases I've taken on that have kind of broken through. You know, they, they've hired uh, crisis PR firms. Has anyone threatened to sue you? I can name names, but um, <laughs> I, I had an article on my, on my website about um, somebody in, in the pizza world who had uh, misrepresented their career. I would say. And they kind of built it on their role at this major Brooklyn pizzeria. Turns out that pizzeria had fired and sued them and all this other stuff. So I, I was writing an article about it. And the subject of that article found out that I was writing an article and was telling people like, oh, the second that article drops, I'm going to sue Joe. You know, that didn't happen. I think the best defense against, you know, claims of defamation is, is, is telling the truth. You know, I'm obviously very interested in, in the truth, even when it, you know, might not be the convenient thing that actually helps, you know, do what I do, mm -hmm. um, like report on this stuff. Maybe it's not as clear cut. I think a lot of these cases are, are pretty nuanced. You know, I try to get things right to the point that, you know, I'm confident in the stuff I'm, I'm putting out there. You know, I wouldn't get very far if, if somebody could just kind of throw their weight around and threaten frivolous lawsuits like that. You're listening to the Extra Spicy Podcast. We'll be right back after the break. You can support this podcast and the newsroom that creates it by subscribing to the San Francisco Chronicle at sfchronicle.com slash pod. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet... You can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. I'm Soleho, and we're back with Joe Rosenthal. So, okay, I wanted to bring up 
someone that you talk about a lot, actually, in your Instagram stories, Clarence yeah. Kwan, who was actually on this podcast. Um, I am, I've been one of his enablers, and I own up to that. Um, I I was one of his enablers. Right. Um, yeah. I, I, I reposted his stuff. I had people tell me, like, oh, I follow this guy because of you. I, I think a lot of people enabled him. So a little bit of background is he posted about a local San Francisco chef and sort of accused them of appropriating and kind of, you know, selling out Chinese culture and all this stuff. And it turned out this chef is like, you know, uh, was born in Asia and um, was really inspired by Chinese American food and wanted yeah. to honor it and all this stuff. Right. And there's a lot of really weird kind of ideology about like the validity of adoptees, for instance, in accessing culture and all of this stuff yeah. that got really messy. And you post about Clarence a lot whenever he, you know, it, this happened, I want to say like a couple years ago at this point. No, it was like, I think it was actually around this time. I think it was last year. It feels like it was a long time ago. I know. Oh, um, God. Okay. I do post about it occasionally. I think, you know, to back up some background on, on Clarence Kwan, um, the God of Cookery was his username, is his username, though he's no longer active. He was, you know, posting about food appropriation and, and kind of painted the, the local San Francisco chef as the implication was that it was a white chef appropriating Chinese culture and, and so that they had no training in, in Chinese food. And it turns out, actually, it was... um a Korean adoptee that had sought out any semblance of, of their uh, background in Chinese food, which, you know, it seems like a stretch, Korean adoptee, you know, finding their culture with Chinese food. But like, you know, you're in rural America and you're adopted by, by white parents. You know, that's not an uncommon experience. Right. You know, you're learning to hold chopsticks from the waiter at the Chinese restaurant. And so I think that was this kind of foundational experience for the chef. And they had worked in a Chinese restaurant. And, you know, the whole kind of idea that it was a white chef that had no experience with Chinese food was just patently false. And I would say at that point, I was kind of uncomfortable with the direction that I was sensing the account going, the Got a Cookery account, but I had nothing really to go on. It was just kind of a gut feeling. And so I was still following it. And so I started posting about this situation and calling on like a redaction of, of the claims. I started digging and digging and talking to people. And it turned out that a lot of the cases of appropriation that Clarence Kwan, the god of cookery, was uh, putting out there were, I want to say, intentionally misrepresented. There were very clear details throughout all of them that were omitted. And I think, you know, I try to avoid attributing intent. But I think when you have so many examples where it's very obvious, like, okay, the language here was implying something. And I think, you know, if you read the articles and read the posts, like, that's very clearly not the case. I think when it happens so much, it's hard to believe that anyone would be so incompetent, you know? <laughs> right. And the reason why I bring up that, I think in the past, I've observed every time Clarence posts something on Instagram, you know, just a yeah. recipe or something. I always hear it from you first. Yeah. <laughs> In this case, he ended up editing his caption and acknowledging that he misrepresented the identity of the chef. So, I mean, at this point, what are you looking for from someone like him? Has he made any sort of restitution, either publicly or privately, that, I don't know, might satisfy um, no. Um, he kind of, so after the, the, the thing with the, with the chef, he kind of said like, oh, you know, I wasn't clear, you know, that sort of language where it was like, 
it's a murky situation and like you know i i i like screwed up you know that sort of thing uh, but not really like i misrepresented this i got it wrong but more like i phrased this poorly you know that sort of thing not really an admission to to wrongdoing and i think for nothing else did he ever acknowledge that you know i had people telling me that um he was saying things like he was a thousand percent chinese and that they're you know because they're biracial that they're not um, I have, you know, exact quotes. Um, you can find them on my Instagram in my God of Cookery highlight. I talked to his people um, at his former employer that said that he was fired and walked out and descriptions of what was essentially the same kind of behavior in the workplace. So this is, you know, longstanding behavior that's been going on for years. Um, no acknowledgement thereof. I think he positioned himself as somebody that was reporting on appropriation and kind of villainizing what he framed as bad actors, but were really, I think, people that were misrepresented. You know, he called out a food writer for um, appropriating mooncakes. That food writer has a Chinese daughter, and, like, mooncakes were the food that they made to kind of, like, it was their um, culture. And so they were being a mom. Mm. And uh, Clarence had talked to that daughter and tried to gaslight her. And I, I have that all on my Instagram. Like, you know, it was really disturbing. And I, I, I think, you know, when you talk about accountability for him, I think I, I never want to see the God of Cookery as a persona again. I think it's absolutely terrifying. And I think as a case, just <sighs> kind of going down that rabbit hole and talking to all the people that he harmed, it shook me. I actually like stepped away from social media for I want to say like a week or so because I was getting so much anxiety. That was a really, really tough one. And I don't think he could ever be trusted to report on this stuff again. And so in his case, like, yeah, he could admit to all this stuff. That'd be great. I don't think he needs to report on on food appropriation. I think he hurt so many people to the point that like, they're describing what's essentially PTSD to me to this day. I never want to see him as the God of cookery again. Mm. Yeah, no, you could just come back and post dogs. Um, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, I know. I know it sounds harsh, but like, I, I didn't even report the extent of it. He just hurt so many people that I, I can't even imagine it. I mean, in a way, it almost feels like, or at least cases like his, their genre is similar to your genre, if we're talking yes. about Instagram pages that do this yeah. kind of work. Um, yeah. Is that what really disturbed you? In part, yeah. I think it's hard not to look at that and think, like, did I get anything wrong? Did I unnecessarily, like, hurt people? I'd like to believe I haven't, but it's hard to, like, I don't know, to see somebody so flagrantly do that and not look at your own body of work and, and consider, you know, your own possible role in doing that stuff. That's That made it tough. I think just seeing the people up close that he harmed, that was tough. The fact that I, you know, promoted the guy, yeah, that I got it so wrong, it, it was hard not to think about, you know, just my own body of work. Yeah. Something that we all sort of have to grapple with individually is what do we owe to the people that we are serving or ostensibly yeah. serving in our audience. Yeah, what do you feel like you owe the people that are looking to you? I think I owe them the truth. I feel strongly that um, when I post something, I want to have a source out there, you know, be it um, a direct link to the article or an archive.org if I don't want to give, you know, ad money for something that's like really reprehensible or something that I think is really like prone to changing. 
I try to let people see for themselves. I try to quote as much as I can directly. I think if I have like one goal, it's for people to kind of be able to think critically, to like take a deep breath, slow down and think about, you know, these situations and not get kind of swept up. And so I think kind of like getting people to kind of consider the source. I I think, you know, that's kind of the thing I want to train my audience to do. And you might be thinking, well, Joe, don't you like make a lot of like parody news articles and stuff like as a joke sometimes? It's like, yeah, I do. And I think that's all kind of in service of this. Part of what is a through line of your critiques, too, is that like food media is not covering a lot of this stuff um, with the same insistence that you do, but also like not with the same depth. Like when people go on book tours, for instance, and they still haven't owned up to things that they've done. Um, Yeah. You bring that up. Why do you think we don't talk about it? Well, I think this one, I, I do want to name names. I think um, Chris Crowley at um, at New York Magazine Grub Street um, wrote a really great piece about, um, it was the Nightmare Inside uh, Mission Chinese Food. And it discussed, um, among other things, uh, racial violence that occurred from the chef de cuisine um, at Mission Chinese Food who worked under the chef Angela Dimiuga there. She basically let a friend run rampant in this kitchen and failed to hold him accountable even when um, he violently burned a black dishwasher with a spoon after threatening him for an extended period of time. Right, and Um, this is documented. Documented, yeah. I I personally talked to many sources that pointed to her, you know, toxic behavior. Chris did the same. And I mean, for fuck's sake, it's in New York Magazine. She kind of ducked down and didn't publicly acknowledge it. And I think uh, at this point, you see a lot of promotion of the book without any acknowledgement of the profound harm. I mean, um, this is somebody that was going and giving interviews um, in multiple publications talking about kind of issuing this uh, toxic, uh, quote, kamikaze culture in restaurants. Well, at the same time, was in charge of of scheduling. Um, she had the final say on 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 you know how much people were working, and and people were working. I think it was like fifteen hour days. You you could check my Dima Yuga story highlight, and I've got you know the actual quotes in there. And so it was kind of like she built this reputation of being this super progressive force in the restaurant world, and um, really it was the same abusive kitchen environment that she was pretending to be a champion against. And I think given that, you know, the reason she has a book is because of that posturing. I think it's essential that we we discuss that harm. You know, people talk about the book in terms of this is an important book. And so we're not going to kind of rock that boat. But I think there's a middle ground of this is an important book. This was also really harmful. Mm-hmm. And I think you could do both. As an Ashkenazi Jew, I think um, Jake Cohen's Jewish ought to have been an exciting book. He's been named in a racial discrimination lawsuit. I knew that was looming. I didn't talk about that fucking book because I couldn't talk about that book and talk about something that, you know, isn't known at this point, you know? Mm -hmm. And in particular, you're referencing his work with FeedFeed, the cooking website sued for workplace racism, right? Yeah. So um, the lawsuit was against Jake Cohen and FeedFeed. And I'd have to check and see exactly who was named, but yeah. Right. And I, I, re- I do remember a, a quote that is from Jake Cohen that, that really like made a lot of rounds on social media just about um, yeah. sort of an anti-Asian sentiment uh, yeah. that that was really like disturbing for a lot of people. And 
uh, that is among many other things that were listed in the sort of reporting about this case. Yeah, and you, I have um, a Cohen highlight, and it links to all the um, the reporting on this. The Washington Post was was the first to to talk about it. I, I think you know Jewish food as a concept um, in restaurants is a dying thing. You know, the, the Jewish deli is not doing well. Um, it'd be great to have people really excited about Jewish food, but I, I couldn't have seen myself talking about that book without acknowledging, you know, the harm that he's been accused of. Um, so what you're hoping to see then is reporting that can reconcile, that can like circle these squares and just like hold all of these things together. The fact that this is an important book and the fact that this person is accused of enabling toxic workplace cultures, like they can exist in the same story, but it seems like more often than not, they just, they just don't. Yeah. I mean, it feels hopeless sometimes. Mm, I get that. I get that. Yeah. Very distinctly. I don't know how to end on not hopeless, but that is like, <laughs> well, I think, <laughs> I you mean, know, I, that, that I, is like a common thread, I think, in in life. How do we dig ourselves out of these institutions and all these tendencies that are so ingrained into something that serves people, that actually helps people? I think it sounds so hokey, maybe, but like my biggest limiting factor is me and my like my emotions and my mental health. You know, if I can get in the right headspace, if I can actually believe that I can do this stuff, I can. When you get weighed down by this idea that it's hopeless and that you can't do it, you're not going to be able to do it. You just can't get disheartened. You know, there's a lot of journalists that would love to talk more about this stuff, but aren't in a position to do so because editorial mandates from higher up, um, because they just don't have the resources to dig into these things. It could be really tough to do this, you know, investigative reporting when, you know, you basically your job is telling you, like, do these write ups about, you know, the best chicken sandwich in in St. Paul or something. I don't know. I don't think these journalists are to blame, mm -hmm. but I think it's tough when people don't want to alienate readers. A lot of people want to retain their problematic favorites, you know? Um, <laughs> I made a little sticker on my Enabler magazine cover. It says, shut the fuck up. They were always nice to me. <laughs> That's a real force. I think people don't want to risk relationships. People are kind of choosing the side of the oppressor in general because they don't want to get involved. And the person calling out the oppressor is the one that's like taking action is how they perceive it. But the reality is they're enabling and they're complicit. That was kind of my theme coming out of 2021. And I think I'm going to go harder on that theme in 2022. You know, what I'm doing is a fool's errand. I, I know that. But, you know, if you can make just some amount of change, I think it's worth it. You got to push. And I know that a lot of people aren't in a position where they can. And so I think that's why it's critical that those who, who, who can push do. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing what comes out of that. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thank you so much for your perspective. It's so needed, I think. Well, I, I really appreciate you talking to me. Thank you. Yeah, no, the pleasure is mine. Today's episode was produced and edited by Taya Francesca Price, with help from executive producer Sarah Feldberg. If you're enjoying Extra Spicy, please tell a friend about it and give it a rating on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. 